we think about the women's suffrage movement, we often think of lively parades and rousing speeches by activists like Susan B. Anthony. But in the earliest days of the movement, women weren't supposed to be speaking in public at all. Women weren't even supposed to applaud in public. This is Lucinda Robb, co-author of The Suffragist Playbook. They were supposed to be quiet. And if you wanted to show appreciation for a speaker, you waved your handkerchief. That's what you did. So in the very beginning, and when they first started off, it was almost like if you were a married woman, you everyone was in a conservatorship uh, because your husband was in charge of everything. By the end of the movement, but before the 19th Amendment was actually passed, other things had already improved. The fact that women could speak in public, the fact that women could more easily get an education, the fact that laws were getting passed so that women could own their own property, so that they could have the ability to own their own wages and they could form a contract. I mean, they started having more um, abilities to, to really participate and do so many things that by the end of her life, Susan B. Anthony was talking about the fact that we've almost accomplished everything. All we need left is the vote. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, Lucinda Robb and Rebecca Roberts on their book, The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World. When Lucinda and Rebecca first considered writing a book on the suffragist movement, they were surprised by how few people they talked to knew anything about it. So they set out to bring the suffragist stories to life. I'm not surprised a lot of the women didn't know much about the suffrage movement. I don't remember learning anything about it in school. What about the two of you? Did either of you learn much about the suffrage movement in school? No, I don't remember hearing, you know, really a thing about it. It's sort of packed in there sometimes with early 20th century progressive movement, dawn of World War I, you know, temperance and suffrage together. Uh, but the length and breadth of the movement, the idea that, um, you know, it was a 72-year fight from Seneca Falls to the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And so think about how much of America, of American history, those 72 years cover, 1848 to 1920. It's just a massive amount of time and so much social change. And it was so much a part of all of those mini movements, subplots within that time. And we never learned the scope of that whatsoever. And I think some of it is just garden variety sexism, but I also think that some of it is a lot of American history is taught in this kind of hall of fame model where you learn about the great men who did great things. And first of all, the greatness of position and wealth was only available to men. And so women weren't given an option to be part of that hall of fame, but also it really ignores the way a long, slow movement works. Yes, there were superstars. There were the Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and um, you know Lucy Stones and Alice Pauls of the movement. But when you're going on for 72 years, a whole lot of people are involved at a lot of different levels. And so it doesn't really fit that, you know, heroic image of one person changing the world. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons we didn't learn about it. Um, and I, I do think that's changing. I think when Lucinda and I talk to school groups, they at least have some working knowledge of it. Um, and if this white hot spotlight, the centennial has shown on the movement accomplishes anything, I hope it's an ongoing conversation about why the movement mattered and why we need to know about it. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say a lot of my perspective in looking at the history books is that it kind of goes war to war to war. It's sort of big conflict to the next thing that happens along those lines. And particularly being from Virginia, we focus a lot on things like the Civil War. And I've joked before that there are probably people in Virginia who could name more horses in the Civil War than women in the suffrage movement. Um, but we actually think the fact that the suffrage movement wasn't that it accomplished so much and had so much change without getting anybody killed is the reason why we should be talking about it. We think it is a model to follow because you didn't have great societal upheaval and violence. You managed to do something really important and really big without killing everybody. And we, we think that's the reason why we should look at it. Rebecca, before you started taking a deep dive and learning about the suffrage movement, didn't the history of it seem dull to you at first? Oh, it not only seemed dull, it seemed so remote. 
And I think part of it is because Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are held up as the mothers of the movement and they, you know, they've got those starched collars and those lace caps and they feel very ancient. Um, and it was also told in this very pedantic way of, you know, women were wronged, women, women stood up, men recognized it, men granted them the right. And I think, like, the story is actually so dramatic and so compelling that you've got to work to find a dull way to relate this story. You really have to be uh, trying to remove all of the drama and intrigue and ups and downs and wins and losses and uh, then those final couple of years, which were so dramatic. And um, when I first started looking into the 1913 March, I was so angry over and over again about not only my own lack of curiosity, but all, you know, every history teacher I had ever had, because I got involved um, at the 90th anniversary of suffrage. I'm on the board of a historic cemetery here in Washington, and I was hoping to see if there were enough people buried there who had been involved in the movement where I could do a special walking tour just of suffragists and anti-suffragists and people involved in the movement. And I kept... When you, when you do research in a cemetery, you, you're reading obituaries. And I kept reading about these women who had marched in this 1913 suffrage parade down Pennsylvania Avenue. And I had never heard of a 1913 suffrage march. I thought civil rights marches were invented in the 60s. It never occurred to me that that was a tactic borrowed by a later movement. Um, and I'm a feminist and a reader of women's history and a local DC native. And if I didn't know about it, um, I, you know, I figured no one else did either. And so not only is it a great story on its own, it's so instructive to see how many other social movements have borrowed from the suffrage movement because they won. They were good at it. And, you know, it's, it's so relevant, even in contemporary activism, um, that it's frustrating how little credit is given. Had either of you known before researching this book just how much some of the white leaders had excluded Black women activists from their efforts to get women the vote, and some had even sold them out to prioritize white women getting the vote? You know, that's one of the interesting things when you've had a chance to... Uh, first, I was involved in the 75th anniversary celebration, and back then it was very much considered a celebration. And then when the 100th rolled around, I think there was a much different perspective. There'd been a lot of great scholarship that had since coming out, um, talking about a lot of the black women, um, suffragists who'd been involved about their experiences, what they did in the social movements, um, and exactly what you talk about, how they were left out. Rosalind Turborg Penn did a great book talking about early African-American suffragists. I learned more about Francis Watkins Harper. Nell Painter did an excellent biography of Sojourner Truth. And it's important because you can really see how things change our perspectives over time. Because I think this time around, there's a greater recognition that we haven't got the whole story. There's a lot more to it that we can learn. And just as you said, there were people who were left out deliberately. And it is really hard to read about and to see what they did because you want your heroines to be great all the way through. And learning about their feet of clay, finding out um, their failings is something that it's sort of discouraging. And you think, you know, on the one hand, you want to say, well, that's what it was like at the time. And then you think they were specifically talking about equality and justice. How could they have been so blind? But I think part of what you have to do is then think, okay, um, it's easy enough to go back and say what somebody in the past did wrong. I think it's a lot harder for us to look at ourselves and think, what are we missing? What are our own blind spots and how can we do better today and going forward? And I think that's so important. You know, we, in the contemporary women's movement, people have finally started talking about intersectionality and competing needs and understanding that your perspective is not everybody's perspective and criticizing the almost entirely white leaders of contemporary women's movement for not understanding that their needs are their own and not everyone's. Um, but you see that happen with the early suffragists um, over the 15th Amendment. Because so many early suffragists were also abolitionists, that's often how people came to the cause. They thought that they would not get abolition without the right to vote. 
that if it was left to the men, abolition would only be accomplished through bloodshed. Of course, they turned out to be absolutely right. But then when the 15th Amendment after the Civil War enfranchised black men and no women, there was a huge rift in the movement. There were those who said, we'll take this now. We're, we're abolitionists. We're going to accept the 15th Amendment and fight for women next. And there were those who said, we're really tired of being told to wait our turn. We can't accept the 15th Amendment if it doesn't enfranchise women, even if it enfranchises black men, which was a goal of ours. And you can understand both those points of view. There is some logic behind each. It's not overtly saying black people don't deserve the vote, but it is a blind spot in terms of trying to understand that there is more than one need within a broad social movement. And I think we're seeing, we see echoes of that again in the 20th century part of the suffrage movement, putting my needs before yours, trying to let the ends justify the means here. And I think we see it in the contemporary women's movement. And I think you see it in pretty much any social justice movement that fails to recognize how many people are under their collective tent. What did you discover mainstream women were thinking about giving women the right to vote? Gosh, you know, there was such a broad range that it's hard to define what mainstream even meant at the time. I think that um, the anti-suffrage women were a really interesting bunch, and even they weren't monolithic. So the anti-suffragists, some had religious reasons, some had um, sort of class reasons. They thought that suffragists were just kind of not nice and a little bit tacky. Some really feared for the um, domestic role that women had played for so long being degraded in some way. There was this idea that the public sphere belonged to the men. That was what they were good at. The private sphere, the family, the home belonged to the women. That's what they were good at. And that um, wanting to participate in the public sphere was somehow saying my private sphere isn't enough. My role at home is not enough. And that undermined for a lot of women their entire life's work. So I do get it to some degree. Um, I think that even women who wanted the vote had different levels of how hard they were willing to fight for it um, and what tactics they were willing to employ. I mean, I personally would like to think I was the kind of person who would pick it in the streets and be willing to go to jail, but I'd probably be more of a behind-the-scenes fundraiser, frankly. Um, and so, mm -hmm. you know, it was such a long movement with such a continuum of views um, that it's kind of hard to pinpoint a mainstream. And I think one of the things that you have happen is, and Beck and I debate this a lot. We talk, you know, right now you have a lot of movements. They say, you know, is it more important, you know, the radicals or the moderates? And they often get pitted against each other. And Beck and I think we've, we've come to the idea that you need both radicals and moderates. And we'll sometimes talk about whether we're Team Cat, um, and she was the head of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which would have been the more moderate group, or Team Paul, who definitely would have been the more radical group, picketing and, and marching and all those sorts of things. And, um, and I think, again, probably when Susan B. Anthony and others are first getting started in the beginning of the movement, they would have seemed like radicals. They would have been, you know, kind of crazy what they were trying to do. Um, but over the period of time, they morphed, they become very respectable to the point where Susan B. Anthony is invited to the White House and the president celebrates her birthday and, and things like this. But this happens over time. And that's one of the things about the suffrage movement. When they first introduced the idea, it seems crazy. And then it gets to the point where it becomes part of the public consciousness, but it's not really anybody's top of line issue that they care the most about. You know, that's sort of like this, this interesting idea um, that they're talking about, but it doesn't really become more mainstream until more in the progressive era um, when you have people talking about issues of big social reform they want to happen. And, um, and instead of making suffrage, women's suffrage, an issue that is sort of a moral issue, you should let women vote because it is morally right, you find people making the argument that women need to be able to vote because they can make important change. So you have uh, leaders like Frances Willard, who is president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and she's somebody nobody has heard about today, but in her time, she was 
huge. She was one of the best-known women in the world, probably second only to Queen Victoria, probably one of the most powerful women in the United States in her time for about 20 years. Um, and she really sort of very successfully rebranded uh, the women's suffrage movement by talking about things like the home protection ballot and citizen motherhood and all of these things that women needed to have the ballot, not just because of you know, they wanted it for themselves because it was a right to have, because there were so many good things that they could do if they would have the ballot, both for temperance and public health and education and labor conditions and all these other different uh, issues that did sort of seem to be more in the sphere of what women were allowed to talk about and care about. Um, and so it was a really successful way to bring about a lot of conservative women who up to that point may have thought it was kind of a nutty idea or not very successful. And she got them to say, yes, this is something that I need to do because this is a tool that I can use um, to have an important impact on my own children and, and society as a whole. How could I have never heard of Frances Willard? How was she the second most well-known woman in the world in that era? She was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was the largest women's organization um, in the United States and perhaps in the world. Um, and that was, you know, she was the first, when I try to to give people ways to understand how big she was, she was the first woman to have a statue in Statuary Hall in Congress, she would not be joined on Capitol Hill by another woman in Statuary Hall for another 50 years. But she was enormously influential. I think now we kind of look back on temperance and we sort of think, you know, what a bunch of sort of silly old ladies and what were they doing? And we sort of turn up our noses as if it's not something uh, that was worth talking about. But back then, back when women had fewer rights and fewer laws and there wasn't much of a social safety net, temperance was a huge deal. If you weren't allowed to own your own wages, even if you worked, if your husband could take the money that you owned and go and use it and drink in a, in a saloon where you couldn't by social construct, women weren't really allowed to go into saloons. They didn't get to drink in public. Um, if your husband could legally beat you, if it was very hard to get a divorce, drink made women feel very vulnerable. And so it was a huge social issue. It was much, much bigger. Um, and it, in fact, got passed as an amendment before the 19th Amendment did. Um, there was a much wider consensus that drink was a problem. Um, and they're actually, they've gone back and they've looked in alcoholic content and drink back in you know, George Washington's day was stronger than it is now. So alcohol was a drug that women felt made their lives so much more vulnerable. And so a lot of women joined the temperance movement, were very, very active. And, you know, Becca mentioned earlier that, you know, you join one movement and that often gives you the skills to get involved with another. So you had a lot of women who were in temperance to begin with and became suffragists or women who started off in the abolitionist movement um, and then did temperance movement and then did the suffrage movement. They sort of did the hat trick of all the, the big three at the time. Um, but, but that was a way that you, you had a role in improving your community. And if you haven't heard of Frances Willard, it's because you have not spent enough time with Lucinda Robb, who is her publicity agent and biggest <laughs> fan. <laughs> I read recently that a young lawmaker in Tennessee back in the day changed his pivotal vote on giving women the vote only after his mother sent him a note. Don't you think that happens so often where someone in power is swayed by one person they're close to? I wonder how many men ended up voting in support because their wives, daughters, mothers, or lovers asked them to. Right. I mean, I think that we see it all the time where suddenly men in science start caring about women in STEM because they have a daughter or, um, you know, a, a trusted mother or grandmother sways someone's views on preventative health care or something like that. You know, for so long, that was the only power women could wield was that kind of behind the scenes influence. And uh, Lucinda and I are both descended from women who were absolute masters at it. Uh, both Lindy Boggs and Lady Bird Johnson <laughs> would um, influence so many more people than they will ever get credit for in our lifetimes. And I think that that is another reason it's important to learn women's history is that um, the power, women's political and social power 
was for so long by necessity behind the scenes. Uh, but that doesn't make it any less powerful. Um, you know, it's it's now become this story we all hear about Harry Byrne in Tennessee, the one vote who switched to ratify the amendment and made Tennessee the 36th state. And it came down to this one guy changing his vote. And he whips this letter from his mom out of his pocket when the National Press Corps asks him why he changes his mind. And, um, <laughs> you know, wasn't it this dramatic moment that his mom wrote to him just in time to tell him how important suffrage was to her? Um, and it is a great story, and I don't want to take anything away from the drama of it and go Mama <laughs> Byrne for making sure that her son listened to her. Um, but it is for so long the story of women's political influence. I mean, think about Abigail Adams, right? And this goes back to the very beginning of the suffrage movement. If you talk about Seneca Falls, um, one of the reasons why they actually had in the Declaration of Sentiments that they were able to pass the idea that women should have the right to vote was because Frederick Douglass was there in the crowd. Originally, it was supposed to be just women, but they did decide to invite some men. And originally, it looked like the resolution was going to fail until he stood up and spoke in favor of it. And I think that's one of the things we have to keep in mind is that no woman ever got to vote for suffrage. They had to persuade and convince and work as hard as they could to change minds, all men, because it was only men who had that opportunity to change the vote. And they did. And a lot of it was because of those personal relationships. The thing that's really important here is that you are persuading people and changing minds. And the advantage of doing that is it winds up being more permanent. If all you're doing is passing legislation um, and you're not changing minds, then the next Congress or the next group can come in and it's easy to undo. But if you get people permanently to think about something a different way and they begin to think that that's what really should be the way that it happens, that's when you have the long-term societal change. And you know, when you change the mind of someone in power, that's called lobbying, right? We have a name for it. Um, it, it doesn't matter whether you have a uh, personal relationship with them or not. And actually, this is one of my favorite untold parts of the suffrage movement, because especially the National Women's Party, the more radical wing in the 20th century gets um, told as sort of these um, guerrilla tactics, and it was all about the pickets and the hunger strikes and the going to jail, and it certainly was. But they also 100% did their homework, and they had these unbelievably detailed card files on every single member of Congress and everything he'd ever said on suffrage, whether his daughters or wives were suffragists, um, what his chances for re-election were, um, and then all kinds of personal details. You know, he's a drinker. Make sure you talk to him before five. He's a golfer. Get someone out <laughs> on the course with him. Talk to his wife. She's actually the brains of the operation. And so they, you know, were early and incredibly successful lobbyists. And it's another one of those things where if it's a woman whispering in a man's ear, we say, oh, you know, his mom told him to. And if it's a man whispering in a man's ear, we say it's lobbying. Hmm. What advice do you have for teachers in how to teach the subject to middle schoolers and high schoolers in a way that really makes it resonate for young men and women? So to me, this is a question about what turns this corner from this history being interesting to it being relevant. And which is not to say learning interesting things on their own isn't worth it. But if you want to answer that, why do we need to know this question that every 13-year-old has ever asked in the history of learning? The answer is because they won. They changed American democracy in a huge, fundamental, and permanent way without resorting to, you know, open warfare. And so if you also want to change the world, and I hope every 13-year-old does, then you could do a lot worse than learn from the suffragists. So all of the tactics that they explored, all the marches and the picketing and the lobbying and the messaging are great lessons for early activists. But then all the bigger picture things about um, tenacity, and confidence and finding your role in a big movement, even if you don't think you can do something, you can probably do something else. Even just the confidence to think that you're a perfectly good spokesperson for this movement, whatever movement you want to get involved with. And that's the other lesson to the fact that these women weren't perfect. 
learning that these women were not ideal, that they were racist or they were slow to learn or they made profound mistakes makes it so that they are actual real life human beings and they changed the world, which means all of us with all of our flaws and imperfections can do that too. Yes, it's interesting history. Yes, the story is dramatic. Yes, it's totally undertold. But it also shows the next generation that they have the ability to make social and profound social change. And they can borrow some tactics from the suffrage movement. They can learn the lessons, both what to do and what not to do from women who came before them. And they can get involved in whatever issue is lighting their fire because we're really counting on them to make the world a better place. So often today, I think activists get frustrated because they think change is taking such a long time. Why isn't it happening right away? I mean, and, and I don't know that any activist has ever thought that change was happening fast enough. Um, but from when they first started that campaign from women's suffrage to when they finally had the 19th Amendment, so much had changed. And in that first generation of suffragists, and you had three generations, and a lot of the original suffragists lived very long lives. Quite a few of them lived to be 86 in particular, and they still didn't get to see it passed. But they were able to recognize at the end of their life how much had changed. And they started having more um, abilities to, to really participate and do so many things that by the end of her life, Susan B. Anthony was talking about the fact that we've almost accomplished everything. All we need left is the vote. Um, and one of the last things that she said in her last public speech, the just a few days before she died, uh, she talked about failure is impossible. So I think one of the messages I find really inspiration is, you know, basically never give up. Um, it's going to look hard when you're day to day and you think things aren't happening. But if you pull back, there's probably so much change that you are creating um, and in a way that that really becomes permanent um, that you're just not going to be able to see until a little bit later. But you are making a difference. Lucinda Robb and Rebecca Roberts are the authors of The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World. Rebecca Roberts is a journalist, curator of programming at Planet Word, and author of Suffragist in Washington, D.C., The 1913 Parade and the Fight for the Vote. Lucinda Robb is a dedicated nonprofit volunteer, serves on the board of the National Archives Foundation, and is co-founder of Kids Giving. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. summer, gymnast Simone Biles chose not to compete in the Olympic team competition, and one opinion piece after another weighed in on her decision, a personal professional decision, as a public commentary or a stance on mental health. Tamika Ferguson says that because of their status as firsts or onlys, Black women athletes are often looked to as activists on political and social stances. Ferguson, who is an educational leadership professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, founded a group designed to help Black women athletes on college campuses lean into leadership. Tamika, you were a student athlete yourself, even a walk-on who became the star of the team. Did you consider yourself an activist at that time? No, I did not. I didn't think that being a walk-on or taking that action of just trying something out to see if it worked well was in any way a behavior that was protesting or going against the grain. And so I didn't see myself as that. It was really what happened off the track and more or less in my life at UVA as a person of color, as a Black woman at a predominantly white campus that developed those skills that I would determine as me being an activist. What did you notice? What what sort of things happened during your tenure? I was in a supportive space with athletics. I had 
peers and even adults who were those mentors who poured into me. And so I felt protected, but the broader campus was not always reflective of those micro support systems that I had. And it was a year prior to my freshman year that there was even a person of color, a woman of color who was attacked um, on our campus for running for student government. And so it was always this sensitive space on campus where we knew that slaves had built some of the campus and we knew that it was Thomas Jefferson's university. You know, we always had the the Sally Hemings conversation. So there was this ever-present otherness of being Black on the campus. And so that's really where my identity and confidence in my identity was built because I had to be sure of who I was in order to remain a student at UVA and a student who wanted to do good things and who wanted to make a difference and wanted to make a change on and off campus. It's so interesting that you've come to the conclusion that Black women athletes are often in some ways forced into activism. Why do you think that is? I wouldn't necessarily say forced into activism. I think that they are expected to be activists. I think that because of the role of being an athlete and a lot of people associate student athletes with being leaders without asking them if they choose to be leaders. And then when we think about the history of activism and protest, we see black women using their bodies, their talents, their skill sets in a way that changes the narrative, that they want to change the policies and the laws. And they have, whether they've been in front of the camera or not. And so in athletics, we see the visual images of women basketball players, particularly in the WNBA, who are using their bodies. Some of them are sacrificing their careers. Some of them are doing things to change the systems that they face on and off the court. And so in a college setting, it is expected that if some athletes are doing certain things, that all athletes must do certain things. And it's not that they're not leaders, because I strongly believe that student athletes are, but I don't think that it's fair to just force that leader and force that activist label on them, that we help them to develop their voice and their agency and the skills that they need and to help them understand what they can do and to empower them to do those things with appropriate resources and support. Who do you think is is putting them in that position? Why Black women college athletes? Who seems to be creating that expectation for them? Some of it really is the shifts that have happened in our society. If you think about the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of protests, post-Eric Gardner, post Trayvon Martin, um, and even looking at the history of activists who have done things like Althea Gibson, who was the first Black woman champion in tennis, Um, you know, Flo Jo, who used her outward appearance and her athletic prowess to demonstrate that Black women can achieve at the highest levels, particularly in track and field. And she always wore these outfits that demonstrated her femininity in a very in-your-face way. And she was unapologetically confident in her body. We have all these Black women in athletics who have always gone against the grain. They have been the only or they have been the first. And that in itself, if you are the first, if you change the image, if you get the award or you win the Olympic um, match or you win the Olympic race, you now are an activist. And they really were just women who were excellent at their sport, who have achieved at the highest levels of competition, and now a label is being given to them. But who is asking them? And I don't think that that's an option that our Black women athletes have had. What about some of the young Black women athletes who've shot to fame on the world stage just recently? Do you also see that in them? What I see is individuals who just so happen to be Black women, who are 17, 18, 20 years old, Naomi Osaka in in tennis, Sloane Stephens, um, even uh, Nia Dennis in gymnastics, uh, Simone Biles in gymnastics. These women are amazing and they are powerful and they are phenomenal. And they're choosing themselves over their sport. They're choosing themselves over negative stereotypes or social expectations about who they should be, when they should speak, what they should speak about. 
And they are, in essence, become these activists just for choosing themselves. Now people are normalizing conversations around mental health, around agency, around trusting yourself. You've created a program to help Black women college athletes find community, find their voice, and become leaders. Why do you think something like that is needed? When you are a Black athlete, particularly at a predominantly white campus, you sometimes don't have the opportunity to have spaces that celebrate all of who you are in one space. You might go to the Black Student Union and perhaps you feel your Blackness is celebrated and uplifted, but maybe they aren't speaking a fully understanding of what's it like to be either a woman or be an athlete. And so you have a hard time really finding all of who you are understood in that space. Maybe you go to other places seeking to find affirmation of of everything that you claim to be in, in all of who you are. The Black Athlete Sister Circle seeks to create a space where Black women athletes can be all of who they are in a space. It doesn't matter what background you have. It doesn't matter what city or state or country you come from. But we are just unapologetically Black, unapologetically women, and unapologetically athletes. And those spaces are necessary because when people aren't celebrated for all of who they are, they are not whole. It becomes really difficult to be an athlete where the vast majority of the people on campus don't understand the sacrifice that you make to be an athlete, the 20 plus hours a week at practice, the travel on the weekends when you're in season, the the training room, the commitment to being healthy and taking care of your body, uh, not going home certain parts of the season, sacrificing social commitments and obligations that you want to participate in in certain activities. And so when you have a space where people can just sit around and be like, mm-hmm, yeah, girl, that's where the sister circle comes in. And it's this cultural space where we are able to lay down the expectations and stereotypes, negative or otherwise, that people might have on us. And we just redefine ourselves. We focus on the importance of Black woman student-athlete identity in a way that is unrestricted by social norms or even norms on the campus. If you think about some of the Black women athletes, if you're not in, in track and field or women's basketball, you might be completely invisible. And so Basque, the Black Athlete Sister Circle, doesn't really care if you're the only or you're one of 10. We just are there and we share a bond. Did you start this organization because you had a taste of that yourself when you were on college campus? Yes, I did. I was very fortunate um, as an undergraduate student athlete to have a high concentration of Black women on my track and field team. In fact, those are still most of my best friends um, even as into adulthood, well into adulthood. Um, it was my dissertation research looking at the gender and racial stereotypes of Black women student-athletes at a predominantly white campus that really motivated me to create a program. During my data collection, I asked Black women, this last question of the interview was, if there was something that you can do and go back to change the experience that you had, either through programming or through an opportunity, what would it be? All of my participants in one way or another, described having a space where they can talk about their experiences with other Black women athletes. And as a result, I created the Black Athlete Sister Circle using my dissertation research. How can you tell the athletes are getting something out of this? You know, it takes a while sometimes because you have to develop trust. And that is one of the challenges, no matter if it's Basque or if it's another program. But the value comes in change behavior. There was one year that um, will always stick with me. It was a freshman athlete, and she just experienced so much. What she termed as imposter syndrome, just not always fitting in. She was trying to find her place, and she went from being really great in high school to being good in college. And she ne didn't necessarily have a mentor. And that space, every time we met, the older athletes who were on that campus started just pouring into her from encouraging her to take care of her body, to uh, sharing with her how to advocate for herself with the coach, even volunteering. If you want me to set up a meeting, I can talk with coach with you. And what I started seeing was they started mentoring each other and pouring into each other. And that athlete in particular um, just graduated with her second degree. And she still was a part of Basque, um, even through the pandemic. And I just, I'm proud of her because her confidence grew. She became a leader. She became a person who, who is an activist on her campus. And she started speaking up for other people who didn't necessarily have a voice. And to me, that is the ultimate 
consequence, positive consequence that could have happened is that she started modeling what others were pouring into her years later. Tamika Ferguson, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Tamika Ferguson is an assistant dean for student affairs and inclusive excellence and a professor of educational leadership at Virginia Commonwealth University. After four years of President Trump's tweets, it's not controversial to say that Twitter is an important part of politics. What might be controversial, Heather Evans says when it comes to Twitter politics, women are just better at it than men. Evans is a political science professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Heather, you've said that women politicians are just better at Twitter than men. How so? Oh my gosh, so many ways. So let's begin with the fact that women use Twitter more often than men do. They tweet more often than men do. So female politicians, if we look at just the the number of tweets, they send more of them. But the content of the tweets is what's really interesting. So women send more tweets about issues. They send more tweets about their campaigns. And they send more tweets attacking their opponents. Oh, and are you just talking about women in general or women candidates? Well, actually, some data shows that women in general are better at Twitter in that, number one, if we look at all of Twitter users, there tends to be more male individuals using Twitter than women. But women, when they're using Twitter, they're more likely to be out in front. They're the ones that everyone is seeing on Twitter. They're the ones who are interacting with people on Twitter. They're the ones who are talking about politics on Twitter. So from a political science standpoint, I would say women are just better at it. (laughs) Do you think women worry about issues that make their way into politics more than men do? I mean, that, that, that's what women talk with each other about. That's a great question. Actually, I think so. You've probably heard that old saying that a man wakes up one day and he just decides he's going to run for president or he decides he's just going to run for Congress. Women have to kind of be talked into it, right? Every woman who's ever entered politics thinks about that and has to be asked multiple times. I think that women, when they approach Twitter as a platform or any type of social media, really any media generally, they're thinking about how they're going to be portrayed more than men do. Because there is a double standard when it comes to how women are perceived in politics versus men. So if we go back to the 80s, We find that women, when they're running for an office, and this is in traditional campaign advertising, that they are a little less likely, (laughs) I say a little less likely, it's actually a lot less likely to attack their opponents. They're told that they shouldn't be doing this because it's unladylike, it's out of character, and that they're going to be judged for the way that they interact with other candidates. So we find in data that women just weren't attacking their opponents. They weren't campaigning the same. But then in the 90s, that kind of stopped. Women, um, they, they started campaigning similarly to men. If we look at campaign advertising, if a man went negative, a woman went negative. On social media, it's a little different, though. Me and some of my co-authors have found that the gloves kind of come off on there. Women talk about issues more than men do. And one of the theories about this is the out-party theory. Women are more likely to use Twitter in this fashion to try to kind of have a this extra piece to their campaigns, have a leg up on their competition because they are the out-party. There are so few women that they feel like they need to do whatever they can, you know, talk about these issues, also kind of come in discussing like my opponent this, my opponent that, so that they can garner votes. So women are thinking about issues more than men are when it comes to their campaigns. They are strategic in what they are doing. And we see this in their in their Twitter behavior. What about women who are conservative, women who are liberal and all in between? Is one group more negative on Twitter than the other? Actually, the data shows that it's it's kind of you could say the party doesn't matter 
when it comes to negativity between the genders. So whether it's females who are Democrats or females who are Republicans, both groups are both more negative on Twitter than their male counterparts, and they're talking about issues more than their male counterparts. So partisanship doesn't seem to matter there. Gender is what matters. It's really interesting. When you said it that time, it made me think that are men afraid to look like they're attacking women, and so they're holding back and going negative on Twitter? Oh, that's an interesting question. So a co-author and I have looked at gender in the sense of adding women to a race, but we've never done the flip side. And that actually makes me want to do that study uh, where you could take men and look at who are they attacking? When are they more likely to attack? So if a man runs against a woman, is he more likely to attack than if a man runs against a man? We've done the reverse. And what we found is that if a woman enters a race, um, so there's a, a woman running and a man running, the woman will be more likely to use negative language than a man. As more women are added to the race, more negativity happens. So the number of attacks goes up. What does that mean to you, that as more women enter the race, the attacks go up? What do you think that is? I think that, again, we are seeing a group of people who have been excluded from politics using this new medium to say what's on their minds. And we also have some opinion leaders who are on Twitter who are leading the way in this too. If we look at um, individuals in Congress like AOC or Nancy Pelosi who have a large following and use Twitter very well, you know, effectively, that, that women also are thinking about how they could do similar styles of tweeting to garner attention that perhaps would lead to their elections. So we aren't sure at the present time what effect that really has on their elections. So we know that they're doing this, but we don't know how it affects their likability. So if someone is viewing these tweets, how are they affected by it? Are they going to say, oh, look at that, this person, they're tweeting in this way, it makes me want to go vote? Or maybe they'd be less likely to say that. Maybe they would say, well, that kind of changes my opinion of them. That's actually the reason women were told in the 80s, don't go negative, it's unladylike. So do negative tweets actually affect the likability of candidates? We're not there yet. Um, and, and I want us to be there. I think that's the next step in all of this research. Have you thought about looking at other online platforms like TikTok, for example? <laughs> yes, I have. And my students every single semester will bring in a new platform and say, we have to do this, right? We have to do Instagram. We have to do Facebook. We have to do TikTok. Um, I have also seen some studies that have used Instagram to look at imagery, things that women are more likely to project versus men. So one piece that I have worked on with a couple students, this was back in 2016, it was during the presidential race between Clinton and Trump. We collected all of the tweets that they sent from their campaign Twitter accounts, and we collected the images that they included with those tweets. Then we coded those images for, well, what's there, right? Is it an image of someone very close up with other people in the room with them so that you would see them standing, let's say Hillary Clinton standing with a few uh, different people? Is it a wider shot? Do you see Hillary Clinton with a lot of people? Is it from a campaign rally and things like that? And our data shows that at least in that one election, Hillary Clinton's tweets that had images associated with them were really of her and a few individuals. And a lot of those individuals were people of color or women. Donald Trump's images, on the other hand, were of the crowd. So it was a, a wider shot to kind of show just how many people had shown up to come out to support him and listen to him. You know, you talked about this before, but we don't know how effective negative tweets are in political campaigns, right? 
We really don't. Um, I mean, we still debate how effective negative ads are that you hear on the radio or on television. Really? Is that debated? I thought that was known that they work, unfortunately. No, it's still kind of up in the air. It depends on when the negativity comes out as to how effective it'll be. And for some research, some research is showing that negativity does get people out to the polls, but then other research shows that, well, negativity really keeps people home. They think that the election is just too negative and they just don't want, like they'll, they'll say, oh, it was too negative. That's why I didn't come vote. But in terms of social media, some research shows that what you do on social media can drive people to vote. So if you talk about mobilization and people hear it or they see it and they see it come across their feed, then they will be more likely to engage in that election. Well, Heather Evans, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Well, thank you for having me. Heather Evans is the John Morton Beatty Endowed Chair in Political Science at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>